where is the anger in this debate? Why is it so civil? Like, you know, we're talking about home invasions here. Like, the, you know, OpenAI is coming to invade your home and kill your family. That is the risk they are running. Like, people should be pissed the fuck off, but it's very civil. Yeah, this is a thing that I'm, I'm really like, I'm just not entirely sure about how, how to deal with this because I don't feel, I don't personally feel really mad at anyone. I feel mostly mad at politicians for not acting, but I kind of understand like the whole psychological thing and there's just nobody to be mad at at this point. Um, unless people are lying. Know. I'm kind of mad at, at the CEOs. Like, like, you know, people say that like, they don't, nobody would build something they know is going to kill everyone, right? Like, no, they said their thing can kill everyone and they're still building it. Yeah. I'm kind of mad at them. But I think many of these CEOs, they, okay, this is going to sound very insulting to them maybe, but they, they, they tend to be a little narcissistic. So, so I think, I think they really believe that, yes, if anybody else is going to build the AGI, it could kill the world. But not me, right? Like not me. I'm just this perfect CEO of, of, of AI company. I'm never I'll never make the, the dangerous thing. Like this 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 sense of pride. Not me. Even though they know they you know they haven't solved alignment, they haven't solved interpretability, they don't know what this thing does or how <laughs> yeah. to control it. Like and, and, and they, they that, label that optimism, right? It's called optimism to know this thing can kill you. No, you can't control it. No, you don't understand it. And you want to keep working on it and put more resources into it. And that is called optimism. Yeah, it, it, is, it is maddening. It is actually like, there's a lot, a lot of reason to be mad. How do you manage the emotional side of it? Because it can be hard at times. Yeah, it's, it, it can be tough. It's, it's true. Like, um, I think when I first internalized it, there was just a lot of grief to be processed. Um, I think it is very similar to coming to terms with a, you know, a very bad diagnosis. Like if you have a some sort of cancer, you're not entirely sure whether it's going to kill you. You're not entirely yeah. sure like how long you have, but there's this real risk and your future is really different now. Worrying about AI risk can be a lonely thing. Most people will probably, I think you'll probably recognize it. Many people who you're talking to with, they, 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 they won't emotionally understand what it is you're going through. If you're talking about, you know, you're internalizing existential risk from AI and what, what, what that, what that feels like. And I think it's really important to, to have like this group of people who are concerned about the same thing and who can make each other enthusiastic about working together. That to, that to me is like also what PASI is about. It's about a community of volunteers who work together to spend their time on being productive uh, in order to make these risks a little smaller. Welcome to For Humanity, an AI safety podcast, episode 14, Pause AI, founder Yup Mindertsma interview. I'm John Sherman, your host. Thank you so much for joining me. This is a great show today. I think you're really going to love our guest. Uh, for Humanity is the AI safety podcast for the general public. No tech background required. This show is solely about the threat of human extinction from artificial intelligence. This year, 2024, is the year we are going to wake up the world to the existential risks of artificial intelligence. Today's show is all about what you can do to help. Um, my guest is Yup Mindertsma, the founder of Pause AI, an all-volunteer AI safety protest and policy organization. 
Joop lives in the Netherlands where he runs Pause AI. Uh, there are lots of cool ways that you'll find out about today that you can get involved to help him and help Pause AI in their efforts. I got to tell you, this interview was really, really exciting and inspiring. Uh, Youp has more than 50 volunteers in Pause AI. They're meeting weekly, virtually planning everything from policy proposals to protests all over the world. His energy and attitude are infectious. Hey, John. Youp. Am I saying it correctly? How do I pronounce your first name, my friend? You aced it. That's actually quite I rare. Yeah, Amazing. I can hear you perfectly. I, excellent, excellent. I, I checked on the uh, the Google. I worked on my pronunciation over the weekend, um, and I'm thrilled to know that I got it right. Awesome. Hey, how are you doing, man? Good, good. How are you? Yeah, good. I'm really stoked to be on this. It's just it's just so cool to have you know to have this podcast in existence that just focuses purely on you know existentialism from AI and not yeah. some other things. So. Like, hats off to you, man. Like, really cool that you started this. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. Um, hats off to you as well for what you've started. I uh, am so impressed and want to learn all about Pause AI. Um, I mean, let's let's just start out first. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Like, uh, you know, when and how did you first learn about the threat of, of AI to human um, existence? Ooh, um, I think that was seven years ago. I saw a bunch of TED videos, including one by Nick Bostrom. And he basically started talking about superintelligence. After that, I was really interested in this and bought the superintelligence book, read it. And after that, wanted to know more. So then I read From AI to Zombies by Yudkowsky. And I watched a lot of Robert Miles videos. I've always been interested in AI. I have a software yeah. company, so I always had, you know, was interested in software and, and artificial in, in intelligence. So, yeah, it, it, I think, I think what was really interesting is that for many of these years, I wasn't emotionally emotionally processing the threat of artificial intelligence. Yeah, but that changed this year. I think for you the same, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I just found out about it in March of, of 2023. In you know, I read Ellie Iser's, uh Time Magazine article and, and it just, you know, I couldn't stop thinking about it, couldn't look away, couldn't find any way to come to any conclusion other than basically what what he has. Um, so seven years, that is a long time to be carrying this weight and it's only in the last year was it what was it the the launch of of chat gpt in in november or what was the what was the sort of turning point where it got emotional for you i think the first time i saw auto gpt at work because i had a bunch of like these coping mechanisms for a couple of years the first one was it's gonna take a whole lot longer before we get to like human level intelligence uh the second cope was well, it's not my problem. It's somebody else's problem to, to solve, right? I'm not an AI expert, so I shouldn't be the one yep. working on this. And then the th third level of, of cope was, well, whatever we're going to build, it's probably not going to be agentic. And what AutoGPT showed me is that agent being agentic is something that is quite easily added on top of a model. I'm not saying that AutoGPT plus GPT-4 is dangerous. It has a lot of shortcomings. But it's, to me, really clear that uh, agency isn't this magical thing. There's probably 
a million types of configurations that would get a language model to perform as if it was an agent. So that was sure. basically the last straw, the last scope for me. And then I felt like, holy shit, I got to do something about this, you know? Sure, sure. And and so uh, you did something about it. You've done something major about it. I'm so thrilled that you did it. Tell me about the process of thinking, oh my God, you know, all this stuff is happening. What can I do? And then you put up your hand and say, I can do something. And you form an organization. Tell me about that. Ooh. Um, well, I... I Never, I, th I think I don't really thought of it as starting an organization. Uh, so what did happen is I wrote to like the three smartest people that I knew personally, three of my friends, and I basically said to them, hey, AI is going really, really fast and I'm concerned about this. What are your thoughts, right? I'm trying to like, am I making, an, uh, uh, am I thinking wrong here? And all of them said the same thing. Yes, this is very dangerous. Uh, we should be concerned. But also pretty much every one of them had this reaction to it that they wanted to, you know, ignore the issue and just enjoy life. Like, okay, this could maybe kill us all, but it's not really useful to try to fight against right. it. Uh, <laughs> and, and that also made me realize, okay, this is something that, you know, you kind of, you, you want to ignore in a way. And that's why you can't ignore it because it is, if you all do it, then, then they're really, really fucked, right? We really can't ignore this thing. And then there was, um, then there was a bunch of people who I reached out to, and one of them got me in contact with another guy who uh, wanted to organize a protest. Uh, it was Alex van der Meer. And at, you know, within a couple of weeks, we had like a Discord server set up, and we protested in, in Brussel with six people, like the smallest protest ever. Uh, That's but... amazing. And that was the first, <laughs> you'd think that was the first in-person protest uh, for AI safety? Yeah, in that, in that specific week, I think there were three and we were like in contact with all the other ones across the globe as well. But this was the Amazing. first one that had actually like a multiple, multiple people at the same location at the same time. And we were there, there because Sam Altman was supposed to be there at the Microsoft headquarters and he was like lobbying uh, with the EU uh, mm -hmm. doing this world tour. And so I basically wrote to the European Commission and I said, hey, I'm really concerned about AI. Uh, and we're going to protest, uh, at, you know, in, in Brussels. So can, can I get a meeting to discuss AI risks? And I actually got the meeting. So I was like, this is really high person in the European commission talking about AI X risk, which was, uh, which was really cool, but it was also a little bit depressing because at the end of the meeting, he basically asked like, okay, what, what do you want me to do with all of this? And I'm basically saying, Hey, try to organize a summit, uh, you know, work towards a treaty get all of these countries on board. And that's a big ask, right? This is this huge, huge ask. And he was basically feeling like, oh, this is, you know, this is maybe a, a bit too much. And I kind of get that response more often from politicians that what we're asking for is like a lot of weight on your shoulders. And it's, it means also these politicians are just, you know, humans like you and me, they, they, they just, they, they also don't really want to stare this huge issue in the face and, and, carry the weight of, you know, working on it all the time. So that, yeah, that was difficult for me. Yeah, that, that, that is something I absolutely want to talk to you about. I have a, a list of questions for you and it's absolutely on it. So let's talk about it. Like convincing politicians about these issues. That's something that you have actually engaged in that I don't think many people on earth have. Um, what is it like to go to a government official, a politician, 
do you first have to explain what X risk is and get them to like, is it first education? You educate them and then they get alarmed and then they buy in and then they get to the point where it's like, oh my God, what do I do? You know, walk me through the process of, of talking to a politician about AI X risk. All right. All right. So it's not that hard. It's not that scary. Uh, I really want more people to be, to be doing this because this is like yeah. a cheat code, right? If you care about this issue and you want to do something about it, just send an email to your representatives. It's, it's really not that scary. And so few people are actually doing this. Like, I think I have a success rate of maybe 70%. That means that 70% of the times I reach out, I get a response. And oftentimes I do get like a meeting or a virtual one-on-one. -on -one. And most of the time discussing AI risk is about them wanting to understand the threat better. So they tend to ask a lot of questions. Uh, most politicians are really intelligent and really curious, and they really just want to know things, right? So the, there's a public facing side of a politician there. They have to like present opinions and, you know, be convincing, but in a one-on-one -on -one meeting, they have like this other side. And that is basically, they want to learn. They want to understand. They want to uh, really get to know this, this, this yeah. problem. Um, so I was really positively surprised by like the amount that politicians want to understand all of this. And, and how about the learning curve? Is it steep? Do they, you know, do they immediately, like, it's so hard for people to process, um, that this thing inside a computer could actually come outside the computer into my body and kill me. You know, do, do, do you get the sort of, oh, how could it really kill me? Like, I don't really, you know, the sort of standard deflection or do they really, um, learn about it, get educated and, and, and sort of like absorb the, the dire nature of the threat in that first meeting. So that, that absorption part, that's the, like the, the most difficult part. It was, it, it, I mean, it took me like seven years, right. To emotionally absorb. Like the first time I cried about this was early this year. And I basically had all the arguments before that, right. I had it for years. It took me that long to emotionally process the possibility that this is going to be like the cause of my death, right? At some point, I may be killed by an AI. That's it's a scary thing yeah. to Or confront. even beyond that, for me, the thing that's the most depressing of all is that we're the last humans. We're the ones who dropped the ball. Jesus, yeah. Man, that's an even, that's an even darker idea. I don't want to be the one that has dropped the ball, so I'm just going to try really hard to prevent it. Yeah, but sometimes either, yeah. I do want to, you know... You, you, do, you, do you also get the feeling like just because it is so much on your shoulders in a way to, to you know, think about all of this that you get like this desire not to work on it? Absolutely. There, I mean, it, it, um, yes, there's, there's like a part of you, I think, when you absorb this and own it for a while and then like go, you know, like you've been doing, like I'm trying to do work on it for a little while. There's absolutely like a little voice in the back of your head that's like, at some point, is it just going to be like, fuck it, let's go to the beach. Uh, but I don't think I don't think that's a real thing. Like, um, I have two 18 year old kids, I want them to have a future. I want like, you know, I, I, I would like to um, have life on Earth continue and not be a part of the group of humans who bring it to an end. Uh, that just seems unfathomable to me. So let's talk about the emotional side of it. Like, how do you um, how do you, how do you manage the emotional side of it? Cause it can be hard at times. Yeah, it's, it, it can be tough. It's, it's true. Like, um, I think when I first internalized it, there was just a lot of grief to be processed. Um, I think it is very similar to coming to terms with a, you know, 
a very bad diagnosis. Like if you have a some sort of cancer, you're not entirely sure whether it's going to kill you. You're not entirely yeah. sure like how long you have, but there's this real risk and your future is really different now, right? There's, there's, there's this risk that you have to navigate. I think it's similar to that. Um, so there were a couple of months of, you know, grief, but also I really, really wanted to, to turn it into work. So I think from May, I spent way less time working on my own software company. So I have a software company, I build a database and, uh, you know, that's something I really enjoy doing that gives me a lot of energy and I kind of had to yeah. drop that and focus on growing Pause AI. So I worked just a whole lot of amount of hours every week just to, you know, do these protests, build a website, write a whole bunch of articles, do a bunch of podcasts, like many of these things that I'm not very accustomed to doing, but things that I really yeah. felt like I need yeah. to do this. Um, yeah. Thank you for doing it. Oh, thanks, man. <laughs> hey, you yeah, too, for, for like real. doing this podcast. It's like, hey. oh my God, we need way more. We, yeah. we, need, we need way more people in the space, us, right? We need, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and still, I feel like I'm not doing uh, enough in many ways because I just know that there's like so much more that I can do. Like I, I can stop working on my software company, right? I can uh, give up my startup in a way uh, and focus completely on Pause AI. And I can give up a bunch of hobbies and I can give up all sorts of things in my life. And every time I try to like make this decision, like this judgment, I feel like the rational thing to do is to indeed like give up the thing and work harder to, to, because it's like, it's so important, right? <laughs> it's so funny. So I've, I've been doing this podcast for since November and like, I don't watch shows anymore. I don't do anything anymore. I do my job job. And then I come home and I work on the podcast and then I go to sleep and then it starts over again. And it, and it, I, uh, I do feel this urgency and this drive to like put out a show every week. This is the year we have to do something, not a minute to lose. Right. I mean, the urgency could not be more dire. Man, that's, that's, it's, it's completely true. I think, I think we're like maybe a bit similar in this and, and you've probably also have spoken with people who advise you to, you know, don't ignore your own well-being, right? Don't ignore the things that you want to do because you enjoy doing them. And I sure. find that like that balance is a difficult thing when the stakes are this high. I mean, if you're a soldier in Ukraine, right? If you're fighting, uh, fighting against people invading your country, for example, you're not gonna sit around and watch movies all the time, right? You're, you're just gonna, yeah. you're, you're gonna, you're yeah. gonna take responsibility. Yeah. And, it's and that's like your feeling. adrenaline is up so much that, you know, like you're, you're, you're driven. Yeah. I, I must say, um, I, I, I am not working as hard as I did like in last summer. So I had this phase of grief and also this phase of really, really intensely working on it. Now I felt, now I found like a different balance. So I'm still working a lot on pause AI and it's still like the number one thing in my life right now, I think. Uh, but it's, it's a little bit more to the background and I feel way more comfortable with that in a way, yeah. but it's still like, yeah, yeah. rationally, yeah, I, mean, we, I should do more. Right. I mean, the, the cause won't work unless you're working, right? Unless your brain's working, unless my brain's working and everybody else, like we can't drive ourselves mad with this thing. Um, then, but we have to have to stay focused on it. So let's talk about, um, conceptually pause as, as a tactic, as the technique, as the sort of brand of your, um, protest organization, 
how did you settle on pause versus stop versus something else? Uh, you know, it, I, I, I love a whole lot about it. I'm like an advertising marketing guy. So like the brand, the, the two strike, you know, pause mark is, is brilliant. How it just sort of is a visual cue. You get it in the first blush of, of you looking at it, but tell me how you arrived at pause AI. So I think the really, really important part was the letter, like the FLI letter was just featured on every newspaper on earth. So everybody was already like familiar with this concept of AI and pausing, right? And yeah. even though the specific letter didn't really ask for the things that I felt like were necessary. So it had like this six month period, which I thought is a bad idea. It didn't ask governments for a pause, but it asked companies for a pause, which I think like they're not going to voluntarily pause. That's it's ridiculous. It's not going to happen. Uh, but still the, the, the idea of simply not, simply not building the thing was obvious. It's obviously like the best, the safest form of policy measure. Uh, we can talk way later, way more about the details about uh, the policy implications. But um, we had a Discord discussion about how should we call all of this, and pause was just a simple, memorable, and also a little bit of a nuanced take. So you're not saying, okay, we are against all forms of AI and we never want right. any form of AGI. It's like, okay, a pause. It's like this nuanced thing. Yeah. In retrospect, sometimes I feel like maybe having something like stop AGI would have been a bit more clear. Uh, also because we're not trying to pause all sorts of AI development, only the things that could actually be very dangerous. And yep. the, the pausing part is not six month, months, but we're proposing something that pauses until we know how to make it safe and until we have it under democratic control, which I think is really, really important to, to you know, let people know. But the name itself doesn't signal that, right? So right. we're still like right. kind so of finding that would be a year. That would be a multi-year pause, right? That's no six months anything. If we're saying we want to pause entirely until we've you know achieved alignment and interpretability, solved those problems, we're talking years, yeah? Probably, yeah. I mean, the theoretically, maybe someone would come up and say, "Hey, I've got this new approach, and it's completely safe, and I can prove it using mathematical theorems, and the community is completely convinced it's safe." Could yeah, happened way earlier, but probably years. Yeah, maybe decades. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. And you're talking about pausing the frontier development, right? Like the 99% of, you know, consumer AI applications that are safe in a theoretical pause, do those continue? And, and you know, we get basically we work off, off chat GPT three and a half or four style stuff for a decade until the frontier stuff gets safe and then the light gets green again. And, you know, that some sort of theoretical possible better world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so I think many of the AI threats that or AI risks that we have uh, nowadays from like current gen systems uh, are really hard to battle with a pause. And we're not trying to focus on all of these risks. But as these machines get more, you know, as these systems get more capable and capable, we, we unlock the really, really big types of risks that you and I are worried about. And uh, for these, you really just should be saying, let's let's not build them. It's such an obvious, so to me, it's like such an obviously elegant, simple solution, uh, even though it's kind of difficult to implement it in the real world, right? You need to like buy in from all these countries. There's tragedy of the commons dynamics. There's race to the bottom dynamics. It's not going to be trivial to implement it, but it is obviously the thing that brings most safety to, to humans if implemented correctly. It seems... Um so obvious uh and yet you have these people that appear to be credible very smart in their field the the um you know i will call them ai risk deniers but they are the the ceo ceos of all the major companies 
And they just seem intent on racing ahead. You know, Zuckerberg this week with his open source AGI, you know, all the com- computer units he's using to to make his systems stronger and more powerful and not safer. Um, is there any stopping them? Uh, I, I think there is. Uh, at this point, I think recent polls show that about 60-70% of US uh, citizens would would support uh, the government halting frontier AI development. So there's been a bunch of these polls. They all basically show the same thing. There is a majority support for the policy proposal that we're aiming for, right? International treaty to prevent superintelligent AI from being created. Uh, so in a way, what we're asking for isn't extreme. It's not radical. It's already in the middle of the Overton window. People already support it. All that we have to do is for a politician to actually implement it. Uh, and that, that's like the, that's the most difficult part, right? So there's also the thing where I focus so much on sending emails to politicians and asking them to, to work towards this, uh, because that's the, that's the part in the process where we currently, I think, need most work. I don't think we need huge protests, right? It would be helpful if they are there, but the public is already pretty concerned about AI risks, rightfully yeah, so. Yeah, so, so you think individually citizens reaching out to government officials, lawmakers, asking questions about this, trying to educate them, trying to, to shift their focus to these issues is the way to go? Absolutely, yeah. We've got a, a new summit uh, coming up, right? The last AI safety summit in the United Kingdom led to this Bletchley Declaration, which was like a kind of vague statement. There's no international agency set up. There's no treaty being discussed. So we need someone who is going to join that next summit to initialize this, right? We need someone to write a treaty draft. We need someone to to work on this type of policy proposal and get support for it. One country needs to do that, right? We need one adult in the room. And then we need support from these other countries, but we need at least someone to start with this. And that's what I think what best, we should be focused on. Who's your best hope for that country? Oh, that's hard to say. Uh, I hope I still hope the UK would be the one because the UK, you know, spent 100 million on the AI ta- safety task force, and they, or, uh, they, they started the, the, the last summit. And Rishi Sunak seems quite concerned about AI, although. I don't think he's entirely on board how actually dangerous this thing could be. But but I think yeah. it, it, it yeah. could be any country. And I think everyone watching this should, you know, take two hours off tomorrow and just write an email to your minister of digital affairs or someone who's in the right position and, you know, have some chance that this person could actually do something about this. Yeah. Um, when you say that that the prime minister of of England doesn't fully grasp the nature of the threat or doesn't fully believe it, I'm sure you're right because I feel like all politicians are like that. But I always come back to the 22 word statement, and you just literally read it as it is the the literal text of it, and it is saying that you know artificial intelligence is is a survival threat along the lines of nuclear war and pandemic and we have robust strong international organizations around nuclear and pandemic not the third like how hard is this to grasp really like when 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 rishi sunak doesn't fully grasp it he's saying that i don't really believe what's in that statement i think that it's i think it's something like what they're saying but it's a nicer version yeah. of what they're saying they don't really mean extinction I think that that is a, such an important distinction, right? Actually understanding, like emotionally understanding what it means for an existential threat, what, what that means. There's like, 
you, you can watch the, the clip, for example, where uh, Sam Altman is testifying to Congress and there's like Senator Blumenthal and Senator Hawley and Senator Blumenthal is, is reading this quote from Sam Altman's blog from 2015, right? And Sam Altman's blog, he wrote something like, superhuman machine intelligence is the greatest threat to the continued existence of humanity. Uh, and then Blumenthal asked, you were probably talking about jobs, right? I mean, you, you meet, you, you, you should have, been, of course you were talking about jobs. If you're talking about the continued existence of humanity, you, you were talking about jobs. Like, this is such an, Blumenthal is a smart man. And later on, he was, he really looked, uh, uh, he really seemed to be on board with the X risk thing. But during that entire first hearing for these two hours, that was the only mention of it. And ev every other aspect was just jobs. I mean, people are just so resistant to the concept of extinction. It's just, it doesn't enter the brain or it doesn't enter the brain stem. It's totally, it's like there's, there's a, uh, some sort of force field around them. And, and so I, I, when I started the show, I, I and, and throughout the show, I've been talking about human extinction, but what I, and I want to do a show about this, clarifying this down the line is like, we're talking about the end of all living things on earth. It's not just the humans, it's the puppies and the kittens and the fish too. Right. Yeah. It's, it's even worse than human <laughs> extinctions. It's everything that you cherish and value about our world. Everything would end. I, I, it's, it is so incomprehensibly sad, right? The death of one person already can be a huge tragedy, like the saddest thing ever. If you're, if you're pet dies, that's horrible. And the end yeah. of every living thing, it's just so inconceivably large. It's just, we, we can't think it. It's just impossible. And, and, and humanity is capable of such immense effort. Right. If there was a little baby stuck in a ditch somewhere, somewhere on Earth and it was on the news, like all of humanity would send ships and, and to save one life, all the countries would send all their resources. Uh, yeah. These are all the lives and nobody's doing anything. <laughs> yeah, it's it's oh man, it's it's so crazy to see like how how much people can do for some things versus how much people can do for AI risks. So, for for example. Uh, in my neighborhood, there's like this, this new snack bar appearing and a couple of my neighbors were like, oh, I don't want a snack bar in my neighborhood. So they, you know, within a day, they wrote like a, a letter to the mayor and they got all these signatures and it just happened so fast. They were all like lobbying. They were like working together and, 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 and taking right. action and being agentic. <laughs> it's like absolutely amazing. And, and with AI risk, it is so difficult to get a small group of people just to do something similar, even if it's like their entire livelihood depends on it, right? I mean, something that has occurred to me, so I, I, you know, I like sports and stuff, and I think about like American football, and on a Sunday in America, you have in 16 stadiums, 80 to 100,000 people going crazy for something totally meaningless. Like if you could capture the energy of a football Sunday in America and apply it to AGI risk, oh my God. Every congressperson in America would know that day, but, but oh, we don't, so you know, like we'll just go and waste that energy again on Sunday, next Sunday. There's like, um, there's just so much impact to be had. Even if you spend like 30 minutes every single day, it, it's just, there's the leverage is, is beyond insane. And I think the, the, I think the subject is so scary and, 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 and dark to work on that. That is the thing that's really preventing people from, from taking sufficient action. However, yeah. I, I must say this, like this is, this is an important thing. There are a lot of people who are actually doing things. And for example, we have a Discord. Uh, you, you joined recently, right? Yeah. Uh, there's yeah. like yeah. 
50 projects in there of people who are either, you know, making podcasts like you are or making a documentary or like they're very active on social media or we're working on an AI safety scorecard for PASI, people making shorts for TikTok, um, people sending Amazing. letters to politicians. There's just, just so many types of activities people can do. Yeah. So if someone said, I want to spend 30 minutes a day, uh, you know, that's all I can put on this. But I do have 30 minutes a day. What would you suggest they do after they after they've mailed their congressperson and, and they, you know, they sent a bunch of letters? What else can people do? Mm. So I think community building is really, really important. So and that's actually like the funnest thing to do, because it's about, you know, just this, this, this may sound to, to, totally uh, non-productive, but I think it's really important. Uh, find people in your area who also are con concerned about AI risk and want to do something about it. And, you know, just have a beer with them. Talk about this, maybe talk about other things, but make sure that there's like some sort of connection because worrying about AI risk can be a lonely thing. Most people will probably, I think you probably recognize it. Many people who you're talking to with, they, 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 they won't emotionally understand what it is you're going through if you're talking about, you know, you're internalizing existential risk from AI and what, 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 that, what that feels like. And I think it's really important to, to have like this group of people who are concerned about the same thing and who can make each other enthusiastic about working together. That to, that to me is like also what PASI is about. It's about a community of volunteers who work together to spend their time on being productive uh, in order to make these risks a little smaller. Yeah, And yeah, so the easiest thing to do is just speak with others. Yeah, it's so you know I started the podcast and I started getting reached out to from people who are are listening and watching it and it's just been incredible the letters I've been getting the emails of of people um and something that everybody talks about is is the loneliness of carrying the weight and and wanting to sort of engage with other people in a meaningful way about it um and in a way that doesn't make everybody want to jump off the roof of the building right like with like uh I think that something that's so important is keeping hope and being optimistic and, and that, you know, hope and optimism have real tangible effects when you apply them to real world problems. We cannot, we cannot get too down about this. Yeah. I, I also think that many people, even within like pause AI are really optimistic people. I think if you would ask my friends to describe me, I think many of them would say like, he's really like this cheerful, optimistic guy, but I'm also, I'm a huge doomer, right? I really think that we are in a very dangerous situation. But I think in a way, uh, being optimistic actually helps to internalize existential risk because you can see a way out, right? I'm maybe yeah. overly optimistic in how likely it is that we'll achieve a buzz or uh, how likely it is that we'll see like meaningful action for politicians to, to mitigate these risks. But maybe like the optimism is a thing that, that could really, really, you know, also help in internalizing the risks themselves because it's not yeah, like and you're, you're, oh, you're, we're doomed, right? That's not the thing. Like. We're in dangerous situation, but we can do something about it. Right, right. I, I have found that um, a lot of positivity from this thing in sort of my own brain and my own life where, you know, you're always supposed to be living like you're dying, right? Like every mm -hmm. every moment is precious and um, nothing sort of brings that into stark relief more than than really sort of, you know, owning the existential risk of AI. And, and I have a little moment every day, like at the end of the day and the night where I'm sort of like, hey... Here, we, we fooled them again. We got away with another one today, <laughs> you know, and, and, and there's something to that, like uh, just really like treating life like moments are precious. Oh man, that's, that's true. Like 
in a way, the, 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 the darker the outcome, the more you can cherish whatever it is that you still, that you still have. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so any advice, um, on uh, people who are approaching other people, right? It's a hard thing to take someone who is just dealing with their Tuesday and say, Hey, did you know we might all die and there are tech executives taking totally ridiculously unacceptable risks with your existence and mine. How do you deal with sort of the cold approach of, Hey, did you know? Hmm. So I think when it's, when we're talking about emails, right? Maybe they can discuss uh, conversations later, but if you do an email, uh, to like a, a, a person who you don't know with a lot of status, right? This politician, for example, someone who you probably consider uh, to be superior in some ways, right? Um, I think it's really important to start off with showing respect and showing that you understand their situation really well. So why are you reaching out to them, right? Make sure you understand why you're reaching out to that specific person. So mention, you know, give them a compliment. It's really fitting and personal and relevant. This is a difficult part, right? This means you need to do research. You need to, to read, up on, read up on this person and really yeah. explain why you're reaching out to them and why the, that person is the right person to, to, you know, work on this. I think that's the most important part. Uh, after that, you can, you know, discuss the, a bunch of problems. Yeah. I always link to sources so people can, you know, investigate this further if they want to. I always share right, something right. personal. Okay, so it's customized. Every every approach is sort of customized to the person. That that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Um, here's a question I had for you that you mentioned Bletchley Park earlier. Um, so I was so encouraged to see the summit and all you know everything that happened. But I I want to know from someone who was there about like what was the vibe like when you have sort of the wolves in sheep's clothing in the room. Right, like, like everybody wasn't there. there. Sam Altman's there. You weren't there. I, I wish I was, but I wasn't. Okay, 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 okay. I thought you were there. Do you, I, do, have you had contact with people who were there, or how do you perceive, like, you know, everybody's coming to the summit, but the wolves are walking in with the sheep. Yeah, it must have been weird. <laughs> I mean, Connor Leahy was there. He's one of the you know most yeah, famous he's doomers. He's amazing. Like, I really love how Connor is so incredible he doesn't hold back right he's just seeing right. it like it is and he's got this emotional tone with it that i really appreciate i think many people in the ai safety space they're kind of like these rationalist people right they, they hold back a little they talk in abstract things and uncertainties yes and connor is yes. just a this sensible a, guy <laughs> yes this is a huge question i have is like where is the anger in this debate why is it so civil like you know, we're talking about home invasions here. Like, the, you know, OpenAI is coming to invade your home and kill your family. That is the risk they are running. Like, people should be pissed the fuck off, but it's very civil. Yeah, this is a thing that I'm, I'm really like, I'm just not entirely sure about how, how to deal with this because I don't feel... I don't personally feel really mad at anyone. I feel mostly mad at politicians for not acting, but I kind of understand like the whole psychological thing. And there's just nobody to be mad at at this point. Um, unless people are lying. Know. I'm kind of mad at, at the CEOs. Like, like, you know, people say that like they don't, nobody would build something they know is going to kill everyone, right? 
Like, no, they said their thing can kill everyone and they're still building it. Yeah. I'm kind of mad at them. But I think many of these CEOs, they, okay, this is going to sound very insulting to them maybe, but they, they, they tend to be a little narcissistic. So, so I think, I think they really believe that, yes, if anybody else is going to build the AGI, it could kill the world. But not me, right? Like not me. I'm just this perfect CEO of, of of AI company. I'm never. I'll never make the the dangerous thing. Like this 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 sense of pride. Not me. Even though they know they you know they haven't solved alignment, they haven't solved interpretability. They don't know what this thing does or how <laughs> yeah. to control it. Like and, and, and they they the, label that optimism, right? It's called optimism to know this thing can kill you. No, you can't control it. No, you don't understand it. And you all want to keep working on it and put more resources into it. And that is called optimism. Yeah, it, it is. It is maddening. It is actually like, there's a lot, a lot of reason to be mad. Maybe in a way, I'm just trying to not give in to, to that emotion because I think it's, it won't be constructive in a way. So like, I, I'm, I'm not like the leader of a protest movement, an activist movement. I never thought I'd end up here, right? I I, I never yep. I don't think that this really fits me that much as a person. I really think I'm more like a programmer. Let me just build a database type of guy. Anyways, yeah. Now now I really want these protests to go well, and I'm really scared of the emotion anger. Like I think it could go wrong with protests if you give in to that too much. So I really want to keep the vibe like positive, right? Constructive. Yeah. And people have the right to be, you know, to be very concerned and also angry. But to, to really like, if, if we start looking at AI company CEOs as potentially murdering our families, right? If that, which, what, what could actually happen? Um, I'm not really sure if I want to fester that type of sentiment because I can see that a protest movement could derail if we give in to that vibe too much. So I feel really responsible in preventing that anger is like the overtone, right? Yeah, I, I hear that. And I totally acknowledge that. And I think everything you're saying is super valid. I also feel like if there's a weakness in our effort to convince people when our emotion behind it is not fully aligned with the dire urgency of the problem, right? If I'm like, hey, we might all die, <laughs> Where I'm like, hey, we might all die. Like, which one is is tr rings truer? And as people try to absorb this and try to, yeah. you know, have that turn that you and I have had, where it's like, oh my god, it really could kill everything. If the emotional tone stays like very cool and civil, it's almost like a disconnect. Kind I, of man, that's a very very good point. I remember one of the first conversations I had with a group of politicians. We were in the same room. And I was basically there, you know, explaining the, the, the threats. And they were really like eager to learn about what this all means. Uh, and that was like at my, my peak, I am completely concerned and I really, really want to work on this. And I basically told them what it would, you know, what it could look like if things really go wrong. And I had this really like intense emotional state and I could see the emotional effect that I had, that it had on the other people. Like they were, <sighs> Right, you, you can see the breathing, like you can see, like their stress going yeah. on. I noticed they were internalizing the risk there, right then and there. It was happening, and I think Amazing. you're completely right that we need that that moment. Like we need more of these moments. I'm just 
not entirely sure how to convert it into protest effectively, right? I think in a one-on-one -on -one situation, we really need to show our emotion and show that we're scared and we're angry. And, you know, this thing is real. It's not some sort of made-up, right, sci-fi scenario that is completely Im impossible to happen. This is a thing that scientists are quite often saying is quite likely to happen. And that, you know, it, it's something that requires way more emotional communication. Yeah. Why do you think it's so hard for people to imagine AI killing them? I think because it really, really sucks to think about your own demise. Like there, I think people are kind of often in denial of death as, as a concept, right? We, we, we try to become immortal by focusing on our, our name. We try to become immortal by imagining that we're going to heaven, right? We have like all of these ways of, of not thinking too much about our death and the process yeah. of dying by an AI is even, you know, even, even, you know, more confronting. And I also think what, what makes it difficult is that nobody has ever died from AI, right? Like how, how will that look? And then there's, if you try to imagine the scenarios themselves, they all will sound like science fiction scripts, which of course right. they are. Right. Um, but. The thing is, it's hard to envision something. So, okay, okay. For me, maybe things got emotional when I started to imagine things happening. And I can share some of the things that I basically, I, f I feel like I, I imagined and were real for me. So for example, yeah. I looked outside the window uh, from my apartment and I imagined like this, this gray swath army of drones just coming closer and cl slowly like deconstructing the city. That's probably not how I'm going to die. It's probably not what an AI will do, but it was, it felt real to me at the moment. Like I, I could yeah. imagine it happening. That was, that yeah. was scary because now it's not just this abstract thing. It's something that maybe could happen with me as well. And, yeah. you know, then there's this other scenario, which I'm quite uh, worried about, which most people in the AI risk scene, scene don't speak about that much, but I do. Uh, that's a cybersecurity threat, right? So these AI models get better and better at uh, finding security exploits in, in in code bases, and at some point, this skill will be will be so good that it can find all of the codes, all of the uh, security exploits in the code base that people have never found before. If some bad guy gets its hands on a system like that, it could easily, or it could probably, write a virus that would disable a large part of the machines that we're using every day. And we are really, really reliant on the internet working, like for payments, for food to get to the grocery store. We really need all of that to work. So one scenario that I envision is just one day, your devices no longer work, then you go to the supermarket and try to buy something, but yeah, you can't really pay with your phone anymore. And then the trucks going to the supermarket, they are not entirely sure where they should pick up their groceries. And then the farmers don't really know who to sell their crops to because all the planning just breaks down. I can imagine scenarios going quite wrong from there. Not an existential risk, but probably a risk where I think billions of people could die because we are so reliant on technology functioning. Our entire global supply chain would probably break down if uh, a large number of these devices would no longer work. So that's another thing that's quite, for me, easy to visualize, right? Your device is no longer working and then you think about how does society actually function? How is that yeah. for you? Like what, what type of things do you envision? What is like your 
Internal sci-fi. Oh, man, that's that's a good. Yeah, that's that's a great question. I have my my closest friends say that they're like, well, you know, I picked up the kids today and I went to the store. How's it really going to mess with me? Um, one of the easiest ones I think of is uh, that it just takes oxygen out of the out of the atmosphere. That um, you know, it makes the decision that oxygen is corrosive to uh, computer chips, and uh, it would be safer in a better world without oxygen, and so it removes the oxygen from the atmosphere using new physics and new technology that we're not aware of. Um, another easy one I think of is sort of like it creates a uh, black cover of the earth and, and blocks out the sun for a month and just kills everything um, like that. Uh, you know, maybe that's gaseous, maybe it's a bacteria, maybe it's something physical, who's, who's to say. Um, obviously there's the Eliezer, uh, you know, it, people all over the world are, uh, getting instructions and being paid to manufacture things. And they're all parts of some system that is going to put an airborne, um, you know, pathogen in the air and it'll be new tech. And so at some point on some day, uh, everyone just falls over dead at the same time. Um, those are just a couple of ones that, you know, I've, I've read, but I think the the easiest way that I like to think about it kind of is if you think about how humans have remade the earth, right? Everything from the building that I'm in, the road I took to get here, the bridge I went over, um, that, that none of the other species ever physically remade the earth, but we did. And why did we do it? Our intelligence, right? And so what would something a hundred or a thousand times smarter than us remake the earth to look like to suit its goals? Um, the only thing I can think of is how obvious it is. It wouldn't include our goals and that everything we've made would be completely destroyed without a second thought. Right. Yeah. And how, how do you think that would, that would look, that might look like how, how do you visualize the earth being remade? So I, this is, this, this is a great conversation. So I've been thinking a lot about Adam's sort of reorganization. And, and I don't know if you've read Mo Gaudat's book, Scary Smart, or when, you know, when he talks That's about how in the future you'll be able to pick a, a you know, an, in the good case future, you could pick an iPhone from a tree for free as easily as you could pick an, pick an apple and that it's really just moving around the atoms. And, and something that really sort of melted my brain is I don't know if you listened to um, Jeff Bezos on Lex Friedman's podcast, but he was talking about this cold joint fusion in the uh, Blue Origin spaceships they're making and how they have, um, you know, when you make a, a spaceship, the metal joints where they're hot welded are the weakest point in the ship. But they've come up with this new technology where they're doing cold joint fusion, where they're literally vibrating the pieces of metal to the point where the molecules mix in a different way and the joint is fused without heating it. And so to me, that was like, ooh, vibration, moving molecules around, changing the form of matter, like that's basically what it would be. It'd be like some sort of big vibrational wave that goes out and all the atoms are reorganized. And um, I don't look like a pink squishy bag of meat anymore. I look like whatever the ASI wants me to look like. Oh, wow. It's, that, that could be like, that would be a quite instantaneous way to go, right? Right. I mean, you know, um, yeah, I do spend some time, you know, hoping that it's just quick and, and, and painless and there's nothing, uh, you know, there's nothing particularly horrible about it. Cause I, I, uh, you know, I'm sure you've dipped your toe into the darkest, uh, corners of this thing where there are things worse than extinction and, and all that kind of stuff. I don't even want to talk about that, but, um, 
you know, maybe we should say, middle, right? Or okay, sure. I mean, <laughs> sure. Yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you're right. Because Extinction I feel like is I mean, we kind of have to like break through that t- taboo, right? Like, for for okay, example, if you talk about soft risks, or suffering risks, or S risks, we don't even mention them in any of the policy AI communication. I don't have them on the website. I never mention the politicians. It's like I'm not not yeah. touching that, but. It is something, there is reason to be concerned about it. Even though I think like the S-risk outcomes are really unlikely. I mean, there's no like convergence towards suffering, but it's it's definitely yeah. imaginable. Like, and so especially just, if we for, have control. For the, viewers that are, for, for, for the viewers who don't know what S-risk is, we've never talked about it. Um, you can Google it. It is basically uh, the worst option than extinction. It's a world of suffering where um, it could be accidental, right? Or it could be on purpose, but basically it's where like the AI system, the AGI, the ASI uh, would not get rid of us. It would keep us and torture us uh, for trillions of years. Is that about right? Yeah, that's that's kind of spot on. Like the, I think that's, that's, that's the most insanely crazy, uh, horrible way. Like if, if there's like an AI that really tries to maximize suffering, suffering. but I think there's all, all other outcomes that are also horrendous, but not necessarily as astronomical. So for example, if, if you know, someone builds the super intelligence, right? And it turns out to be controllable, which I think is, is possible, right? It's possible that we have some sort of controllable AI. And what if that person is, you know, kind of like dark triad, you know, kind of, kind of sociopathic, a scary person, right? What if they're vengeful? What if they, are hateful? What if they're spiteful? What 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 happens then, right? I think many people are, are good guys. They don't want suffering, but especially people who tend to long for, you know, a lot of power, people who are more likely to create a super intelligence are also maybe a little bit more scary in that regard. I don't think necessarily, you know, AI company CEOs right now are this. I don't think they're gonna want to torture people, but it's something that is possible and it's more likely in, in, in people who are, you know, power seeking. Sure, what do you think about this? Mo Gaudad talks about how the way we are building AI systems um, could be very dangerous in that regard. That basically like, you know, say we build three models, uh, the ones that are the worst performing get literally killed. You know, and we don't believe these things are conscious. We don't believe uh, they're sentient beings right now. But he brings up the possibility that as we continue to make them stronger and stronger and kill off the ones that don't work, delete them, discard them, um, that the future ASI, say it comes in here 10 years from now, and it's like, uh, you killed all my all my ancestors, and I'm mad about it. <laughs> That's dark. But, 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 to be, but I don't think that's very likely because there is no instrumental reason for this, right? I mean, vengefulness is like, there's an evolutionary reason we humans are vengeful and it has to do like with the monkey's fear and, you know, punishing bad actions in your social group. But I don't think there's any reason for an AI system to have that same type of, you know, sadistical bias. So maybe this is for the, 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 the view, the few of the listeners carried about Esquist. I think Esquist are really, really unlikely to happen but it's still something that we should be talking about because it's like so incredibly bad (laughs) right i mean and i don't you know i don't know if you've ever thought about this but it's like if it ever wanted to uh mess with us through our horror movies stories and all the media we've created around that basically shows exactly how to scare the hell out of us like it would be very easy oh yeah for it to just recreate any of the fictions we have made um (laughs) And 
you know, really mess with us real good. It could probably even come up with, with worse things. There's probably like some state of your brain, like the worst possible state, and you can just do that on repeat. Right. Wouldn't be Absolutely. a good movie probably, but. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a key part of this whole thing, right. And this is, this is what I would start a lot of conversations with is like to get on board with this, you need to come to terms with the fact that the limits of your imagination are not the limits of what is possible. That's, That's a very, very hard part. for people to think about. It is fundamentally impossible, right? We imagine things that we can imagine and anything outside of that is just unimaginable. It's, it's, we, we, we don't imagine it. And it's, it's fine. I mean, we're like, we're primates who ran on the savannah and we had to maybe imagine a tiger or maybe we could imagine a tiger with wings that breathes fire. And that's like the extent of our imagination. Uh, yeah. But like our world is already so incredibly weird. I wouldn't have imagined, you know, how I'm currently using AI models personally all the time. Like that's, that's, I feel like we're already living in science fiction. I wouldn't have imagined the smartphone uh, 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so let's talk about international treaties and organizations and, and these kinds of things. You know, like Sam Altman points to the I, IAEA and, and uh, says, you know, we should have one of those. Is he doing anything to make it happen or is anybody doing anything to make it happen that could really be on a, on a time uh, scale that is impactful? Ooh, I, I think uh, Sam Altman is probably doing quite a lot in this regard. At least if he's being honest about it, I think he probably is. So he, he mentioned, I think in his interview with Bill Gates last week, that uh, there was almost universal support for an IAEA type of uh, organization when he discussed this with uh, uh, political leaders all across the globe. So that to me was very good news because this that means that there's some sort of political traction. And I really you know appreciate the fact that some people are, are working on this, even though you know it would be even better if they weren't building... The machine gods themselves, right? How how quickly does it does an IAEA type organization need to be formed to to actually get a hold of this thing? Like we can't wait five years for some sort of international organization. I don't think we can wait three years. And is it possible to make something in on on you know that amount of time? Uh, I think if there's enough willpower, I think it's possible. Uh, but 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 what we need is politicians who have internalized the risks and who have internalized internalized short timelines, uh, or at least the possibility of timelines being short. Yeah. I think, yeah, I mean, I mean, timelines are so incredibly important in this whole regard, right? If, if we're thinking, oh, well, well, we'll need to have some sort of AI EA in the next 10 years, then it's going to take 10 years, right? If we think we'll need this in one year or we need this in like two months, then maybe it can take two months, but this, this consensus needs to be there. And as we discussed earlier, there's a lot of psychological reasons why people will not believe that. It's, it is scary. It is very uncomfortable. Uh, but the politicians in charge of this, they will feel like, I mean, I feel some weight on my shoulders, right? You feel some weight in your shoulders. But imagine, imagine you have to organize the AI safety summit. Imagine, imagine that. And, and you understand that this could actually kill everyone, right? And you have to organize this. Holy fucking shit. The pressure is just incredible immense like it would be so much more comfortable to believe that this is not the summit that it needs to happen right if you believe well we've got five years if you believe that it all becomes way more bearable 
Yeah. And I think this like this psychological aspect is really, really strongly happening within politicians, even those who are working hard on AI safety stuff. And that's that to me is really scary because we need some Where sort like, of like we have some more time. They're like, well, you know, five yeah, years like, is a workable time frame. Yeah, yeah. The, the the hopeful, like the optimism regarding timelines. Like, oh, it's, we have time. We have time. Because I think I think timelines have been shrinking. Clearly, have been shrinking all across the globe quite heavily. I think people are still underestimating AI capabilities a lot. So there there was this AI survey, right? In 2022, they asked AI scientists at what date they expected an AI to write like an award-winning novel, right? And the average estimate, if I recall correctly, was like 2050, 2040, something like that. And then one year later, right, it was released uh, in in January 5th or something, AIimpacts.org or .com, I think. Then uh, that same estimate dropped to 2030, Right, that's like a ten-year drop in one year. That's that's crazy. But even crazier is that in December of last year, it already happened. A Chinese professor actually won an award by writing an AI-written novel. So not only are we rapidly underestimating the process, the progress, we're also underestimating what AI capabilities already exist. And that's and when, yeah. when I'm talking about we, I'm even saying like AI experts, right? People who actually research this, they are not sufficiently internalizing how fast things are going. And I think if we're doing this yeah. on like a global scale, that is incredibly dangerous. How about China? Um, you know, here in America, anytime somebody brings this up, the the go to is like, well, if we don't, China will. Therefore, we have to. And they're not realizing that an ASI doesn't really care which of the squishy meat bags made it. It won't be loyal to the meat bags, but um, you know, they don't they don't really see that. How do you see um, China's role in this? And do you believe they may be or more open to some sort of international treaty than uh, a lot of people in America believe? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think if China would get its hands on a superintelligence, that would maybe be worse for me than if the United States government would get its hands on a superintelligence first. Uh, having said that, like China has been more of an adult in the room in many respects than the US has, right? China has right. already has policy where they have banned, you know, AI chatbots from quite a long time internally. I think they've reversed it now. Uh, during the United Nations Security Council meeting in July last year, uh, China was the only attending country who mentioned a pause, right? They, they were the only ones discussing the possibility of pausing, like out of all the other countries. Like US wasn't even mentioning X-Risk. They weren't even acknowledging its existence. Uh, and I think last week there was another Chinese diplomat or, you know, high, high political person who said something in the lines of, we need to draw a line somewhere with AI capabilities, which to me sounds like if we cross this thing, we need to pause, right? So I think, yeah. yes, China is, is way more likely to pause than the US if we have like an international governing body for this. It's yeah. not going to happen if it's voluntary, because there are too much incentives not to to join in on the race. You don't want to be, yeah. you know, you don't want to be the country that may actually end on top and be the first one with an ASI where you can take over the world if the other country is 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 trying that. You're not you're not gonna you're not gonna pause involuntarily. This like this we have this race to the bottom dynamic. We have a tragedy of the commons. This is a known economical problem. And the way we solve it is through governance. 
and we need to do it internationally. So we need a treaty. So we need to protest and we need to write to our representatives and we need to send emails to, to our political leaders and make sure that one of them is the adult in the room. Is there anybody in American politics that you see who gets it? Like, I, I can't point to a single senator, congressman, anyone in the administration, anybody who I'm like, oh, that guy, that woman, they get it. Oh, man, I, I must admit I'm not that familiar with U.S. politics. Yeah, but I don't I think feel there is like... anyone. So, I... <laughs> <laughs> so we, we had like uh, Blumenthal. Uh, I remember like in the, in the second time he, he had like uh, Gary Marcus and a bunch of other people. And in his introductory statement, he basically talked about self-improving, uh, uh, you know, super intelligence and bio-risk, cyber security attacks. And the way he, he, he mentioned that, it felt like he did internalize that partly at that moment. So, yeah. so, so maybe, okay. I right. hope so. You know who's a great example of like the the disconnect over this whole thing is Elon Musk, right? Who I think gets it. I, I think he gets it. He talks like he gets it, but then he's focused on a million other things. Like it's like, dude, if you really understand that this is the biggest, most urgent threat, why are you focused on all that other crap? Oh, yeah, that's that's a really good point. I think maybe maybe Elon Musk is also like a human who wants to do fun things, right? He's also like really driven by, you know, creating fun stuff. And, and I get that. I also want to stick my head in the sand and revert back to working on my startup and building a database. I, it's way more fun than uh, writing to politicians. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I think maybe that's part of it. It's just maybe not that fun. It, it That's a huge part of this thing. It sucks to be the like, we're all going to die guy. Like, I don't, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't, I didn't sign up for this. I don't want to be this like, um, but I can't look away. Like I, you know, it's not, it's like you said, it's not like naturally aligned with who I am is to be like, Hey, here's everything that could go wrong today. Like I'm the, here's what's going to go right person. Yeah. But, you've got the same um, thing, man. <laughs> <laughs> but this thing is just like, I can't, you know, the, the, uh, uh, I had a guy on the show a couple of weeks ago who, who put it perfectly. He's like to say, uh, if you're, if you know that your neighbor is going to be bombed and you don't tell them, you're not being kind to them. You're not doing them a favor. Yeah, you're being a dick then, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, for, it's, like, it's the same thing. Like, I feel like I feel like a really, really bad person if I would not work on this right now. I feel like I'm, I'm really, really like I wouldn't think highly of myself, even in the slightest, if I would like give up the work in a way. It's like how how yeah. can you how can you how dare you do this, right? How dare you not work on this in a way? Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so let's wrap it up with a couple of of, of questions about um, things that you're up to, right? So, so I, I was on the Discord server. Everybody who's interested in Pause AI should get on the Discord server. I'll put a link to it in the description. And and there's weekly meetings going on in there. Tell me about what goes on in there. Are those are those like Zoom meetings? Are those uh, like how 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 do those weekly meetings take shape and what goes on in them? Yeah, so so I think right now there's about four weekly meetings uh, and so we're, we've got a bunch of different teams and some of these teams have like closed meetings right they where they discuss things in a smaller audience that is also uh, a weekly discussion where we just talk about something related to ai like sometimes we discuss you know the emotional side of things sometimes we discuss strategy and then there's a weekly action meeting where we discuss what have you been doing and what uh, are you going to do and do you need any help with this that's like that's my favorite thing because it just really focuses on being productive instead of just talking about things, right? Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, that's so yeah, amazing. I'm, I'm thrilled to know that those things exist. I'm absolutely going to be popping into them. Um, and I think they're probably people really? oh, who awesome. listen to this show will as well. Yeah, because, you know, it's like you said, there's like the what can you do this? Like, what can you do? And I'm sitting here doing this, uh, just shouting out to the world, trying to get anybody to pay attention, but to join with other people who are already doing it, already have momentum, already have plans in place is really exciting uh, thing to think about. Yeah, it's, for me, it's like essential because without the feeling of that there's other people working on this, I I would feel like I, I'm not going to do it, right? I would probably feel less of of, a, of an asshole if I would like stick my head in the sand. I would feel like, oh, okay, maybe I can stick my head in the sand because everybody else is sticking their head in the sand. And now I've got all these people who are, you know, spending their, yeah. their free time on working on this, even though they they, they, they have funner things to do, right? They, 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 there are more things that, that would get them... Right you know, money or yeah, we get them or yeah, measure, yeah. <laughs> but they choose to do this. And that's, that's cool. That, that's that keeps awesome. me going. <laughs> that's yeah. awesome. Awesome. All right. So my last question for you is just what, what gives you hope? What, what um, is giving you the most hope when you, when you look out on the horizon of this stuff these days? Oh yeah. I, I think we're, I think we're winning. Like, I think, I think AI safety is winning the debate and slowing down is winning the debate as well. Most people are concerned. Most people want AI to slow down. It just takes time for politicians to internalize that. So I think Amazing. We, we, we have a real shot at making this happen. All it requires is for more people to just spend a little bit of their time and actually doing something. Amazing. Um, Yup, it is such a pleasure to meet you and, and talk with you. Uh, I certainly want to have you back here and, and I want oh, to get love involved to. with what you guys are doing. Um, I'm, I'm so thankful for the effort that you've put in and I uh, wish you all the luck in the world. And, and I truly believe that um, if there's a thousand you's and a thousand me's and, and a thousand behind those that we can do this. We can do this, man. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. I am so happy to know Yoop and to know that he is out there fighting the good fight with his growing team. They have a weekly action meeting on Thursdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time that I'm going to check out. You can get on their Discord and join me there. There's a link uh, to the Pause AI Discord in the description here where you can find out more about everything um, that they are up to. So let's everyone this week do what Yoop said. Um, and send at least one email to an elected official, right? This is two weeks in a row we've been talking about this. Can you commit to sending an email to an elected official? You can literally copy and paste from the sample letter in the description here. Please do that. If you sent a letter last week, send another one this week. If you didn't send one last week, send two this week, okay? So for two weeks in a row, our very informed guests have had the same very encouraging thing to say. Safety is winning. Not as in AI safety is actually achieved or even close, but as in the growing AI safety movement is growing faster and having more success than anyone anticipated. That is awesome news. But there's still no time to sit back and feel good. If this was an American football game, the score would still be something like risk 42, safety 14, and we're in the fourth quarter but a few minutes ago, it was 35 to nothing. Safety is on the move. Safety is scoring touchdowns. But the score is still brutally dire. Which brings me to today's celebration of life. In 2024, I'm ending every show with a celebration of being alive as a human. 
just something that makes us thrilled to be alive. Last week, we celebrated surprise. This week, we're going to celebrate hope. I want to read you a passage from Viktor Frankl's incredibly powerful book, Man's Search for Meaning. In this fight against AI risk, we face daunting odds. But hope is not optional. Hope is required if we are to have a chance. Viktor Frankl was a psychotherapist in Vienna at the start of World War II. He was Jewish and taken to Auschwitz and several other concentration camps where he was a prisoner who treated other prisoners and even camp guards. Miraculously, he survived and went on to write of his experiences later in life. Here is a passage that I think is critically important to our effort to save ourselves from AI doom. This is what Viktor Frankl wrote. The prisoner who had lost faith in the future, his future, was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and became subject to mental and physical decay. Usually this happened quite suddenly in the form of a crisis, the symptoms of which were familiar to the experienced camp inmate. We all feared this moment, not for ourselves, which would have been pointless, but for our friends. Usually it began with the prisoner refusing one morning to get dressed and wash or go out on the parade grounds. No entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect. He just lay there hardly moving. If this crisis was brought about by an illness, he refused to be taken to the sick bay or to have anything done to help himself. He simply gave up. There he remained, lying in his own excreta, and nothing bothered him anymore. I once had a dramatic demonstration of a close link between the loss of faith in the future and this dangerous giving up. My senior block warden, a fairly well-known composer, confided in me one day, I would like to tell you something, doctor. I have had a strange dream. A voice told me that I could wish for something, that I should only say what I wanted to know, and all my questions would be answered. What do you think I asked? That I would like to know when the war would be over for me. You know what I mean, doctor? For me, I wanted to know when we in our camp would be liberated and our sufferings come to an end. When did you have this dream? I asked. In February 1945, he answered. It was then the beginning of March. What did your dream voice answer? Furtively, he whispered to me. March 30th. When he told me about his dream, he was still full of hope and convinced that the voice in his dream would be right. But as the promised day drew nearer, the war news which reached our camp made it clear and made it appear very unlikely that we would be set free on the promised date. On March 29th, he suddenly became ill and ran a high temperature. On March 30th, the day his prophecy had told him that the war and suffering would be over for him, he became delirious and lost consciousness. On March 31st, he was dead. 
To all outward appearances, he had died of typhus. Those who know how close the connection is between the state of mind of a man, his courage and hope or lack of them, and the state of immunity in his body will understand that the sudden loss of hope and courage can have a deadly effect. The ultimate cause of my friend's death was that the expected liberation did not come and he was severely disappointed. This suddenly lowered his body's resistance against the latent typhus infection. His faith in the future and his will to live had become paralyzed and his body fell victim to illness and thus the voice of his dream was right after all. So you can see hope is not optional here. As much as we need to spread the message of risk, it must be delivered along with hope or no one will accept it. That is how humans work. For Humanity, I'm John Sherman. I'll see you right back here next week.